Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin, and I'm Michael Bott, and this is the Standing with Stones Antiquarian Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. So, welcome to the Standing With Stones monthly podcast number 14. May 2019. And just to mix things up a bit, we're taking a break from the tour of Britain we instigated a couple of months ago to take a look at the sheer number of sites that exist all over the country. I think it's fair to say that the real numbers will be a surprise to a lot of people. They've always been a surprise to us, haven't they? They certainly have. Yeah, knocked our socks off. Mind (laughs) you, that was the reason we started Standing With Stones in the first place. That's true, too. To make people aware of the number of places there were up and down the the British Isles, apart from Stonehenge. So, uh, yeah, well, the work continues, obviously. And in fact, we we continue to be surprised at the numbers Uh, to this day. Yeah full of surprises. Anyway, <laughs> onward. onward. <laughs> so, first off, uh, what is expanding our peripheries this month, Rupert? <laughs> well, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're kicking off our boundary pushing. We're kicking off in Gibraltar this month. And, uh, and uh, once again, another month running, not with humans. Um, Monkeys? Uh, <laughs> Apes? No, not even Denisovans. Uh, no, archaeologists have found the first Neanderthal footprints in Gibraltar. And amazingly, if confirmed, these are only the second set of Neanderthal footprints ever found. You know, artefacts and bones are found all over the place, but um, as is usually the case with remains, they tend to be traces left in death rather than life. You wouldn't you wouldn't think there'd be many places to find these kinds of kind of traces on Gibraltar. I've never been to Gibraltar. I've seen it from afar along yeah. the coast, you know, and it is a rock that Indeed. leaps out of the sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so what sort of, what sort of conditions or uh, environments are they in? I mean, I've never been to Gibraltar and I wondered the same thing. Uh, it's on the east side of the rock. Right. Um, now, although... Uh, I'm not really, I'm not really sure now why they call it that. There is a sandy area. There is actually a beach. I never Im- imagined that Gibraltar had beaches, but there you go. Kind of makes sense. Yes, it does really. That. Yes, uh, there's a sandy area called Catalan Bay, and there are some very ancient dunes. And it sounds extraordinary, but these dunes collapse with weathering. And the oldest sections are the rem- uh, the remains, the remnants of glaciation. Oh, wait a minute. What, right down there? Yeah. Crikey. Yeah. Uh, do you know, I didn't, I didn't realise glaciation got that far. Well, the, well, the last ice age didn't, but the one oh, before oh, I did. Oh. So, so some of these were laid down over 100,000 oh. years ago. Oh, a long, long time. A long, okay, long time ago. So they reckon that these prints date back around 30,000 years and they were made by a young male, about four feet tall. Um, they can tell that from the depth of the footprint, I suppose. Uh, indeed, yes. Um, but, well, uh, yeah, that makes sense. But what uh, what method do you use to date them if there aren't any actual remains? That's the thing. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, it's OSL, optically stimulated... Optically stimulated. Optically stimulated. 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 I wish there was a word. I wish there was a word, stimulated. <laughs> there is now. Um, optically stimulated luminescence, where they can measure and date the subtle differences between exposed surfaces. So it's a technique they use a lot for uh, ceramics, for example, where they, a scratch in the surface will give you the difference between when the uh, when the pot was actually finished, you know, or, the, oh, or rather okay. the, it's the scratch that will give you the, uh, the date of the actual wow. pot because the outside obviously is dated by the 
atmospheric conditions or the earth that it's found in or what have you. I, I wondered where, where optically stimulated luminescence came in, actually, you know, what yeah. its, uh, what its um, utility uh, yes. was particularly. It's, uh, it, I think it's mostly with, uh, with, with ceramics that it's most commonly used. Yeah. But, um, yeah. That's what it does. But evocatively, in, in fact, it, it's a, rather like at Formby Point, uh, where uh, we were um, hunting out the the human footprints up there, north yeah, of Liverpool, twelve years uh, ago, thirteen years indeed, ago. Indeed, yes. yes. Uh, but they found animal tracks as well uh, here, mm. and there's aurochs and red deer, ibex, leopard, even straight tusked elephants. For God's sake! Blimey. I remember yeah. seeing aurochs at Formby Point. Yes. Maybe yeah. red deer. No tusked elephants. Though. No tusked <laughs> elephants, no. <laughs> anyway, you're looking to see what we saw. Yeah, flipping amazing. Um, another aspect that I hadn't thought of before, in fact, if I'm honest, I hadn't really thought about Gibraltar at all, but after the last glaciation, the sea level was over 100 metres lower than it is today. So heaven knows what's been lost to the oceans. That's an that's Incredible amount in Vast, terms of isn't it? sea coverage. Yeah. yeah. So your your question is, um, yes, your wondering is a is a is a good wonder. That your <laughs> question is a good one. But but leading on from that, yeah, it's true. When we've discussed marine archaeology in other podcasts, it's always been in relatively shallow waters for within the last ten thousand years. Yeah. Uh, we really do just we 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 really do forget just how much sea levels have changed since. That ice age, yeah. First, is it first or yeah? How many ice ages are we dealing with here? Um, well, as regards Gibraltar itself, or as regards these uh, these footprints, I guess it would be two. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, every sentence, everything that comes out is sort of so many questions. You know, so which many. dear listener, you're welcome to travel down <laughs> <laughs> on our behalf and and uh, and report back because. Um, Yes, yeah. we are not the keepers of all wisdom here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't bear thinking, though, does it? How how much more will be lost over the coming century as Ooh. sea levels continue to rise? Oh, crikey! Yeah. Well, uh, but yes. On that darker note, let yes. us move on. On to the news, then. What have you got, Michael? Well, I'm going to take us from Gibraltar to the outskirts of Moscow. Oh, right. Or Moscow. <laughs> and it's a wonderful find, uncovered during building work on a new school, actually. It's a Bronze Age burial site attributed to the Fachinovo culture, basically the Russian side of the corded ware culture. I won't lie to you, I've never heard of the Fatianovo culture. Well, I won't lie either, but neither had I. But we know um, well a little bit about the corded ware culture. We do. But I, I never re- appreciated that it was so regionally categorised. Mm. Anyway, it's a seriously unusual discovery for the region and the biggest find in Russian archaeology in a quarter of a century. So oh, that's wow. saying something. So they've... Excavated a wonderful range of artefacts, battle axes, arrows, knife blades, ceramic vessels, you name it. One of the diorite battle axe heads is a stunning piece of work. The archaeologists generally are really excited about the find because there have been so many advances in analytical techniques since the last major find that they can look at the artefacts in a whole new light. Uh, that's not too much of a pun, is it? I mean, just <laughs> talked about optically stimulated. Sorry, go on, can I carry it? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, and well, obviously, we'll put some links uh, online so listeners can follow up. Actually, while talking about links, it's worth pointing out that um, all the show notes now are uh, exclusively on our Patreon site. So if you want to access the uh, the show notes, I'm afraid you have to be a uh, um, one of our supporters on on Patreon from from now on. So there, there's a, there's a good um, there's a good it is. bit of gentle persuasion. But, but hey, price of a packet of crisps. Pa- a packet of crisps. Bargain. Yeah. We digress. <laughs> anyway, but it's, it's well worth having a look at some of the items. There's some really beautiful work there. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'm clearly I'm going to have to read up a bit on the Fatianova culture. I wish you would. Mm. Well, meanwhile, 
This one could almost have been a pushing back the boundaries piece, but it's such a major piece of news. It uh, it seems we have yet another ancestor in the hominin line. Do you think you should explain what you mean by hominin? Yeah, hominin for anyone who might not know, as opposed uh, to hominin. That, that's a fair point. You mean the difference between ids and ins? That's what I yes, sort of just said, yes. Uh, Well, uh, yes, without going into too much unnecessary detail, uh, in taxonomy you have divisions like uh, families Uh, and genus and species. Yes, taxonomy. God bless Carl Linnaeus, eh? God bless Linnaeus. (laughs) Um, uh, So, yes, it's uh, the hierarchies by which we can uh, identify every single species on the planet living and extinct. And uh, by using the Latin taxonomic names, there's no blurring of the lines of do we mean the same thing in each language because we all have different names for things in in languages, but in taxonomic lingo, we don't. Um, So we have uh, families, genus, species, subspecies, you know, the line goes on. And hominid is the name of the family that includes all the great apes, the modern and extinct, including modern humans, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, all of them. And hominins are the subfamily that includes modern humans and all our ancestors, or or our, all our possible ancestors. Uh, so by that I mean that we could have interbred, okay. we may not necessarily have done oh, so, but we could have done... Um, so, uh, and you know, examples we've got um, Homo australopithecus, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis. Uh, you know, Neanderthals. I mean, they're, they're all ancestors of ours within the hominin distinction. Okay, I didn't know that. that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so basically, if it's hominin, it's a close relative. We could have interbred with them, but they might not necessarily be a direct ancestor. Okay. Um, anyway. Uh, This discovery is from the Philippines, and the remains were discovered in a cave on the island of Luzon. So very appropriately... uh, Is it Luzon? Luzon. Uh, So very appropriately, the species has been called Homo luzonensis, which I think is rather nice. Mm. Uh, So the remains... I'm going to digress. Yes. The thing about taxonomy. Yes. Why is a common rat, ratus, ratus? Well, you have uh, a number of uh, within any grouping. You have the, if you like, the archetype of that type. So a badger of the. Um, oh, a badger is a badger badger. No, a badger is meles meles. <laughs> and uh, and say a buzzard is bootia bootia. Oh right, okay. Um, and uh, a magpie is pika pika. Uh, uh, so, but then you will. So, <laughs> so, so yes, there well, we are like many. To infor- we like to. <laughs> um, it's basically you. You have the um, the distinction. It, it, it's it's if you have a creature that seems to define uh, all yeah. the characteristics okay. of a group, and then uh, and then you know everything else falls. Some people off will be that. glad I asked the question. Yeah, maybe. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, back to Homo lucidensis. Yes. Um, the, the thing is, that the remains have been dated to around 60,000 years ago, which makes them contemporary with other known ancestors, uh, not least of all the Denisovans, who have been in the news a lot during the last months. Yeah, uh, well, not to mention podcasts. <laughs> indeed, to, yeah. indeed. Uh, and once again, all down to modern techniques of biochemical analysis. You know, the remains include bones and teeth. But what makes this discovery so hugely important is that it brings into question our entire accepted history of the human out of Africa theory. What? (coughs) That's rather a large... That's a very big claim. It's massive, isn't it? um, Yeah, big claims or um, uh, 
what's the what's the saying? Um, uh, what did uh, extraordinary to, claims require extraordinary, extraordinary proofs, uh, yes. proofs or evidence? Yes, so, yes. what ex- why why exactly does it call the the whole history of Homo sapiens? Oh, it's a good point. Well, basically, the the DNA findings are flagging up this new ancestor within our genome. Right now, the genetic shifts or mutations can be measured. You know, they, they the mutations happen at a particular what's the word rate. Thank you. Wasn't that hard, was it? No. <laughs> Don't worry, senior, senior moments are uh, increasing <laughs> at an alarming rate. Um, but, uh, yes, so the, gen- <laughs> the mutations, so they happen at a particular rate, and these are showing another distinct hominin line with whom our ancestors interbred at least 60,000 years ago, way over in the east now, in a nutshell, if the out-of-Africa theory was correct, their DNA wouldn't be found within our own. We um, we would have gone over there uh, and interbred with them, if you see what I mean, mm. afterwards. Uh, so it wouldn't be within all of us globally. Mm. Right? So the interbreeding must have happened earlier and not in Africa. There are uh, some people are suggesting that it might have happened in uh, in Europe. Um, I see, but uh, you know that's that that's still yet to be yeah. uh, explored. But it's it's a massive, massive find. Well, I, I say I see, but as you say, that's a massive, <laughs> massive thing yeah. to take in. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it, but I, I don't think I see quite no, yet. No, yeah, but you know what the thing is that makes you wonder how many more species of Homo are yet to be uncovered. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I'm taking us back up north, up into the Arctic Circle, to Zokhov Island. Okay. A team from the Russian Academy of Sciences, led by Vladimir Pitulko. That's a great name, Vladimir. Was it Vladimir? <laughs> I wish I had a... Do, 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 would you like to be called Vladimir? Uh, Vladimir? Like, yeah, Vladimir, better than Rupert, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Vladimir and his team have uncovered a Mesolithic settlement inhabited by up to around 50 people, yeah. dating between eight and 9,000 years ago. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, another major find. Uh, they have found a staggering 19,000 stone tools oh. along with... God, imagine that they had to work. Can you imagine? I mean, to, to digress yet again, there are, there are people called archaeologists. <laughs> You'd be on your third trowel. You, wouldn't you just? <laughs> it just staggers me that that uh, you know, and that with respect, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and learn how to be a real archaeologist in June when I go up to Orkney mm-hmm. uh, and uh, do a three day course. But I don't think I could really, really be a, a real archaeologist because the amount of work. It's not just digging those up. It's each one has to be recorded, doesn't it? Yes, and and put in context and meticulously, Mi- meticulous. Yes meticulous work so the rest of us can sit here in comfort and talk about it yeah like pretend that we know what we're talking about yeah yeah so uh, archaeologists listening deep deep respect indeed anyway <laughs> nineteen thousand stone tools along with other objects made from mammoth ivory antler etc and in amongst the vast number of stone tools there's a there are a small selection of obsidian tools that really do look quite special. Ooh, black volcanic glass. Yes, and for those with a penchant for Game of Thrones, <laughs> yes, these tools are made from dragon glass. <laughs> are you suggesting that they were killing white walkers back in the Mesolithic? Well, who are we to say not? <laughs> uh, but I doubt it. Um, but but these were, these would have been pretty special, I mm. think, not least of all because obsidian blades are so damn sharp. Mm. But what adds to the significance of these particular artifacts is that eight thousand years ago, sea levels were way lower. Yeah, as we said before, yeah. Zukov Island was still connected to mainland Siberia. Oh, okay. yes, and once again, thanks to modern tech, 
Analysis of the obsidian has revealed that it came from near Krasnoy Lake, which is over a thousand miles away, which has major inferences to possible long-distance trading way back in the Mesolithic. Mm, that is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, one for further study, perhaps. I mean, look at us again. You know, pushing the boundaries of standing with stones. Curtains get raised. Yes, uh, on uh, you know stuff going on back, way back in the Mesolithic and uh, yeah where's it going to end where is it going to end new next yes. ubiquity 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 sounds like a name I'd give to my spaceship if I was the, the good spaceship ubiquity I don't know because it's been everywhere or because it's going everywhere who needs whimsy <laughs> Anyway, ubiquity in these terms, in in terms of stones, in st- terms of standing with stones, mm. um, as we said at the beginning, it's the measure of which we <laughs> we've had a. It's the it's the extent to which we've had our socks continually blown off uh, researching this stuff as to mm. how much stuff there is out there. Yes. Yes, and it's difficult to know really where to actually start this topic because it is so vast. I mean, do you think, um, should we just throw out a few figures? Yeah, good thing to do. Let's let's do that. It's something that we we did uh, talk about in in the original Standing with Stones, you know, that that there are over a thousand stone circles actually Britain and Ireland it's about 1300 I think uh, yeah that's that's the number from Aubrey Burles uh, gazetteer okay. yes I think it's uh, 1303 okay there you go <laughs> so uh, and you know and we were making the point in the film that uh, that you know everybody knows Stonehenge yeah. and then you know every, most people know Avebury and going down you've got a lot of people know you know the show sites, if you like, like Castle Rig and the Rollwright Stones. But, but how many people would ever imagine that there were just over thirteen hundred stone circles? It's breathtaking. But then, when you get into other structures, uh, the the thing that I, I actually didn't appreciate myself until uh, we looked it up. But uh, round barrows, there's over ten thousand of them in Britain. Seriously. And <laughs> 10,000, you see, the thing that hits me about this is I think we've really got to stop calling these things monuments, you know, because the very word monument implies that these things were all hugely special. Well, OK, some of them were special, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sites generally, though, I mean, because we talk about I, – I, I couldn't actually tell you how many dolmens, for example, there are, but, but you know, the thing is that when you look at the list – <laughs> that we reeled out over and over and over in Standing with Stones. But and whether it's long barrows, round barrows, bell barrows, henges, mm. um, it doesn't matter what it is. The thing is that they are everywhere. And the biggest shocker of all to me was when we started looking at Cursus monuments, and I'm only going to say Cursus monuments because it sounds – well, it rolls more easily off the tongue than Cursus is – <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but people talk about uh, the uh, the Stonehenge curses, and there's the Dorset curses, yeah. and you might be able to name a couple of others. There's the uh, there's four of them up at Rudston, but actually, you know this this whole notion of them being processionary pathways. Okay, call them whatever you like, but the point is that there's loads of them that we just don't know about. There's about 20 in the Thames Valley. Mm. We know that there's uh, 60 or so in Scotland, and that's just what remains. So, uh, you know, how many have been ploughed flat? Because a curse is an easy thing to destroy. They're so vulnerable. Um, And so, you know, vast amounts of them must have been ploughed flat. Yeah. The interesting thing to do, I mean, uh, I, I'm maybe uh, unique in this, but I don't think I am. Uh, if I was to walk uh, half a mile from my house, I can be walking down the path of a cursus. Mm. 
uh, that was uh, that's one that's been exposed by uh, crop markings, you wouldn't be able to see a thing no. on, on the surface if it, if it wasn't for the uh, the, the crop marks. But mm. uh, there's not one, but two. I think there there are three curses is um, within easy reach, walking distance of where I am right now. Why not have a look, see uh, if anybody's uh, found anything around where you are. Yeah, yeah that's uh, a good point. It, they are all over the place. That's an awful lot of processioning, if you ask me. It's, it's an absurd amount of processioning, if you ask me. <clears throat> yeah. Um, the other thing about the notion of them as processionary pathways, why are the ends of them so very specific? Uh, and again, this is something that I didn't know before we, uh, when yeah. we were researching... Uh, for an ongoing project, we were researching curses in particular. And in Scotland, they're actually categorised by the structure of their end. So for those of you yeah. that don't know what a curse <laughs> is, I mean, essentially, it's just a, a long, narrow, that's why they call it a processionary pathway. Uh, it's just a long, narrow strip that might have uh, ditches and banks might be a raised mound, but basically it's a it, basically it's a long a long skinny enclosure, yeah. and, uh, and that's about all. That's all you can say. And yeah. there are long ones, there are short ones, there are fat ones, and skinny ones, skinny ones. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and, and make no mistake, each one of them represented a heck of a heck of a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean again, we've we've made much, the much an, analogy before, but. You know what it's like when you just go and do a bit of gardening. <laughs> so the notion of shifting tens of thousands of tons of of rock and earth, it's a major undertaking. Yeah. They would not have done it lightly. Um, but, uh, but no, that's the point. You know, that if, if we know that there's 60 or so in Scotland, there's 20 or so just in the Thames Valley, in Wales there's only about four that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. But even so, the point is that it doesn't matter where you go, they're there. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so... Um, well, it's just, we're just making the point. We really <coughs> want to you know, have a little show about curses, but uh, mm. uh, something you don't come across usually or don't even think about mm. uh, is was predominant and um, ubiquitous, to use that word, yeah. for our ancestors. They were all over the flipping place. Because um, so- it's, worth, it's worth saying that, you know, before we started looking into these things particularly, I didn't know of many curses. I took the, <laughs> the media line, if you like. I, I believed what we're told by um, popular archaeology that these were special monuments and they mm. were these, you know, religious pathways or, or whatever. Uh, when you start looking into it, you find that, once again, I know that you'll probably all know by now that, I'm, uh, that I get my grumpy hat on when, uh, when things are branded uh, religious. It's not because I'm not... Uh, it's not because I don't accept that there would have been religious goings on, obviously they would have done. It's just the rush to brand everything with the same brush. But the point is that we, we, you know, we thought they were special and then you find out that they're absolutely everywhere. So, so if the thing that is supposed to be the most enigmatic structure is everywhere, yeah. then really, you know, what are we calling enigmatic now? Well, it becomes banal. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and that... Yeah. that it's, that is, I think, that actually for me, I, I, I didn't expect to use that word, but for me, that's the turn, or the shift in mindset that um, this ubiquity thing uh, gives to me, because of course it uh, applies particularly, um, it applies to all the mon- monuments. Because we're so we're, they are not readily apparent to us. The surviving stone circles, by and large, are out of sight. Yes, they're not easily, barring a few, they're not necessarily easily accessible, mm. and so they just don't cross the horizons uh, of your appreciation, of our appreciation, um, and so in turn. We'll elevate them to uh, a special place. 
we elevate them uh, into having special meaning. But when we talk about uh, 1,303 stone circles in the British Isles and Brittany, we're, <laughs> we're talking all about the ones that are left. Yeah. Yeah. Untold numbers of stone circles have been removed in Brittany. Untold numbers have been removed there's all a, over. There's another point that needs to be made again here, and that's that whether it's towns, villages and cities, you know, whichever it is, that our settlements, when they're successful, they remain and they grow. So you take somewhere like London and... This massive city that has been inhabited for Lord knows how many thousands of years. Not a clue. Um, and we would have had stone circles and Lord knows what uh, all over the place within the Greater London area, which would all have been destroyed mm. for different periods of development over thousands of years. And it's only in the middle of nowhere where... Uh, so take you know Dartmoor because we love Dartmoor. Take Dartmoor as an example. There's so many sites that you can still see up on the moors because due to our ancestors' deforestations, it all became completely inhospitable up there, even poor grazing for animals. So everybody migrated off the moor to uh, to settle in what remains now, the, the old villages that are, are still there on the outskirts of the moor because they came off the highlands and settled in the lowlands. Yeah. And uh, and so the the stone circles and dolmens and standing stones and stone rows and all the rest of them, so they're still there because there's been no farming up there to actually pull them down. Yeah, so it is valid to play the mind game of transposing how many the, the density of sites mm. on Dartmoor to the rest of the country where stone was readily available yeah think on that yeah think on Dartmoor not being unique for its uh, density of uh, monuments yeah or in fact if you're going to make that analogy then look at Ireland mm-hmm and when we did our little piece in stones where you, you, <laughs> where you look at the maps and it's just uh, whatever they are, boulder burial, standing stone, stone row, stone row, stone row, boulder burial, boulder burial, just the maps are just littered. Mm. And, uh, uh, and because farming has been very difficult in those areas in Ireland, then I think we can almost apply those rules to Britain where populations have been that much more dense yeah, four yeah. thousands of years. Yes. So let these things sink in. Mm. Let these things sink in. The other measure, the other number that you've got to uh, put against that is that: Do we know what kind of population levels we're dealing with? Um, well, you can um, you can retro whatever the word might be. You can retro whatever the word might be. Yeah, that's a technical term. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there is a there is a word, isn't it? Because if you get exponential increases, what's what's an exponential decrease? I'm just um, falling off a cliff. Mm, see, I don't. <laughs> I don't do sums. Um, well, what we do know, uh, joking aside, is that if you go back to the Bronze Age, rather than the Neolithic, then we know that we're talking about communities of thousands, and and particularly if you look at, you know, I mean, look at the Salisbury Plain, you know, the well, ca yeah. the, 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 <clears throat> the capital of uh, of Bronze Age Britain or Neolithic Britain, in fact, come to that. But the point is that we know that it was thousands of people, but by today's standards, still smaller than any town. Yeah. There's a distinction that you made uh, when we were having another conversation, and that was the cultural shift in burials when the numbers of sites, so a long barrow, for example, not very many of them because they were uh, social things as opposed to round barrows. That we've, were we've, got the, barrows. we've sort of got numbers for stone circles and curses. We haven't mentioned a number for, for long barrows, though. 
that's true. We haven't, and, um, uh, and we have this about three hundred long barrows oh. that we know about. Three hundred. We'll say that again. Three hundred. Three hundred long barrows. And so the point that you were making yeah. about the difference between the social burials and then when we moved culturally so after Beaker, when we yes. moved culturally into uh, individual burials, and uh, and how many round barrows do we have? Ten thousand. Ten thousand. Ten thousand. Um, so you know that's that's a massive distinction to be made, isn't it? Yeah, really? it speaks to a huge cultural shift and and, uh, and way of thinking generally. So numbers are useful in that. I mean, I hadn't realised that before. Uh, if you think about that huge shift in in practice, yeah. uh, that means that there's a huge, huge uh, mm. increase in in numbers. And, of course, 300 long barrows. Again, it's one of those things that gets ploughed down yes. all over the place. So many of them are lost. Yeah, And the other thing also, just from a practical point of view, that the amount of stone used in the construction of a long barrow, that uh, it is not surprising at all that when they fall into disuse, that's an awful lot of stone that you can use to make farm walls without mm. having to travel far. You know, basically you've got a <laughs> you've got yeah. a ready-made pile of building material. Now, obviously, um, uh, we're talking about um, megalithic sites uh, for the most part, and uh, stuff that uh, needs stone to be uh, apparent or prominent, which kind of limits the areas in which these places. Uh, it kind of limits the areas in which um, these sites can be found. Mm. So I've got uh, dividing that. You know, go back to that one thousand three hundred and three number. Yes. Um, Aubrey Bell says that five hundred and eight of those sites are in Scotland. Does he? He does. Yeah. That's interesting. So if there's 508 in Scotland where farming on that scale has been difficult, then that probably gives you an even clearer picture. If if half of them are in Scotland. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 And, of course, there's a concentration over to the west uh, of, mm. uh, of England because there's not much available rock over on the east side. Mm. Um so there's those kinds of things to take into account. It doesn't mean to say that people in the east, uh, in the east of the country, weren't building things. It's just uh, they're far, far, far more likely to have been destroyed and ploughed down uh, in the interim. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else to say about the densities of sites in different regions? I just say it's occurring to me that there are so many perspectives that you can take, and mm. some, you know, could be useful and illuminating. Mm. Uh, well, it's interesting if if you look at types of uh, of structure. I mean, so, for example, going back to Dartmoor, the mm. you know from stone rows. So there's over sixty stone rows on Dartmoor, and uh, how many others do we really know? Um, number springs to mind. 20 in Scotland somewhere around about that figure okay anyway. so so if we've got if we've got over 60 in Scotland because the, the the number I recall is that we know getting on towards a hundred in total in Britain oh in total yeah okay so so if we know that there were over 60 on Dartmoor yeah and there's you said there's 20 in yep. Scotland and we know that there's 97 in total. So basically, you've got less, you've got fewer than 20 left mm. across the whole of the rest of Britain, which means if essentially what we've got is everything we know is in the extreme south and in the extreme north, then how many must we have just gotten rid of? Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, because, you know, they have the few numbers in the rest of the land. Uh, actually represent a presence. Yes, it's, it's um, yes. In fact, that's, yeah. a, that's a good that's a good point to make. So yeah. we know that they were there, and uh, and yet the concentrations that we know just happen to be in the extreme north and in the extreme south, where and then the rest of the areas they must be extremely vulnerable to to farming. Yeah, to arable farming. Yeah, yay. 
Goodness gracious me. So, yes, just so much everywhere. And and that's, <clears throat> for me, I'll say it again, is that we, I think we need to stop calling these things monuments because, um, you know, we, it, it clearly shows that they weren't special. Well, I can't use the word before. It's, it's getting kind of banal, isn't it? In a lovely yeah. way. In a, in, in a lovely <laughs> way. Well, it's beneficial to us. It gives us something to. But I hope, I hope you, you, you know, that you're having your, uh, your minds blown out there if, if you... Uh, didn't in a uh, nice way. In a nice way. If you didn't appreciate, uh, you know, the numbers before, you start to think, well, what do the numbers represent? What does that mean in terms of how active people were and what was important to them? Mm. It probably changes your perspective about what their purpose might have been. Mm. Uh, do you know? What? I'll, I'll give you another uh, little example. And that is, this is years ago now, I don't honestly remember when. It was when I was uh, living uh, near Kingston in uh, in Surrey. Uh, development started to build a, a John Lewis in Kingston. And uh, the building ground to a halt because when they were digging for the foundations, they uncovered a Roman cattle market. Oh, okay. Now, okay, I know this is Roman, it's not Neolithical Bronze Age, but the point is that uh, that prior to them excavating to build a John Lewis, that had been houses. Right. Right, so, so the thing is that, you know, wherever you go in our towns and cities, underneath our houses, you know, uh, listeners, underneath your own houses, you have no <laughs> idea what might be, you know, 20 feet down yeah. um, and the fact that in fact the, 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 uh, the cattle market under John Lewis it's still there they excavated it to see you know what they could find out and then rather mm. than remove anything uh, they just covered it over it is yeah. still there life was going on intensely it was all over yeah. the flipping place yeah yeah I think that may be the point at which we finish. I think it might be. Have we done our job? I think we are. I hope we have. have. I hope we have. Answers on the postcard, please. <laughs> hope you enjoyed that <laughs> discussion. Yeah. Okay. What is next? So that brings us once again to question time. <laughs> Has anyone? I wait to hear with bated breath. Has anyone asked anything this month, Ruben? <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. Okay. Yes. Well, f for those of you who may not know, Michael kicked off a debate within the online community recently about the function of the 56 Aubrey holes at Stonehenge and whether or not Hoyle's theory that they were a solar and lunar eclipse predictor sounded feasible. Well... We generally felt that it was unlikely, didn't we? That's fair to say. Yes, but we yes. can we can dis we can discuss that in a mo. We can get into the details of that in a yes. mo if we just not digress right. right now. But, yes, but the thing is, <laughs> uh, Kevin Ronan Druitt joined in the debate in uh, on YouTube. In, in, yes, on YouTube, um, and uh, made some. You know, it was very interesting dialogue, um, and it's one of his questions that I just thought would be good to bring in this month. And uh, and that question being? Well, if they weren't an eclipse predictor, because we were saying it, we said we didn't think it was that, he said, well, if they weren't an eclipse predictor, what the hell were they? <laughs> 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 and you can't argue oh, that's okay. actually... OK, that's a good point. Uh, um, so I, I think I, I'll, I'll say up front, then you yeah, can argue yeah, okay, with okay, me, okay, okay. that the point is... Again, for those of you that don't know, those of you that do know, sorry if we sound like we're teaching grandmothers to suck eggs, but 56 Aubrey holes. Yeah. Well, the full lunar cycle, and we know that there's sites all over Britain that uh, that measure the lunar cycle. Okay. So if the full lunar cycle is 18.6 years... I thought it was point seven. No, 18.6. 18.6. Okay, sorry. So, <laughs> Do you know what? Look, listeners, he's giving me such a look. <laughs> Mind you, this is where we look into the thing and find that it's 18.67 and you're actually right, but I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but, but the point is, the fact that there are 56 Aubrey holes, uh, that's clearly 
the maths just tells you that's three full lunar cycles. Now, why that would be relevant, the thing is that the argument is, and I think that's the point that Hoyle was making, mm -hmm. was that using the three full lunar cycles is what enabled you to make accurate eclipse predictors. Right. Um, now... That's all I can offer. And and because we were being dismissive of that, because our point was, but why? Because from a solar eclipse point of view, you can't see solar eclipses in Britain for the vast majority of the time. I, I mean, I don't know the actual maths of it, but I know there's only been one full solar eclipse in mm. Britain in something like the last century, isn't it? It might Full, have been yeah, two. But, yeah. um, we, we get partial eclipses and annular eclipses, but the thing is, if the weather is bad, mm. which, let's be honest, is often the case, if it's cloudy, then if it, anything less than a total eclipse, you're not going to notice that it even happened because it just... Maybe, yeah. No, you wouldn't. You really wouldn't. Um, so, so we're saying, no, we don't think that's very likely. Mm. Um and then Kevin said, well, what do you think it was then? We find it... Uh, I think it's a question of which end of the telescope you're looking at this through. It's all very well for us to look at uh, back from the 21st century and deconstruct with, uh, you know, the, all the scientific knowledge and astronomical knowledge that we have and mathematical knowledge that we have. Mm. It's, it's so easy to look back and de do a deconstruction on, on something where the numbers just happen to fit. Mm. And come to a conclusion that, well, that's what they must have been thinking. Mm. Well, no, their point of view was a very different end of the telescope. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting exercise for us to deconstruct that going backwards. But is there enough motivation for them looking forward to expand all that energy and, uh, and time and effort uh, in, in creating... Uh, an enormous monument mm. for the purpose of predicting a lunar or solar eclipse. Mm. And that's the question. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to accept that they did if somebody, you know, gives me a really good argument. Yeah. But our perspective looking back is not a, in my mind anyway, a, a, at least a sound evidence. No. The fact that we can de deconstruct it is not mm. sound evidence for them. In that respect, I'm coming down on the side of Clive Ruggles, Professor of Archaeoastronomy at, at Leicester. Yes. Um, you know, who makes a similar point. He doesn't deny that they were capable of doing it. Mm. He's, you know, it's his job to investigate mm. these things. And, and, and he, uh, alongside the archaeoastronomy, he um, studies, his study is uh, um, ethnoastronomy, you know, where contemporary peoples are, are doing the same yeah. Or sim similar things. Um, it's more more about an honouring, uh, not you know, rather than mathematically predicting things. Well, I, I think there's various if points as well. Yeah. I mean, one you made the point, you know, but, but why would they do that? You know, if you just want to make a predictor, then why make something that you know you've got these these slots for stones that would have weighed how much did they weigh each? Did they calculate? Well, the blue stones um, could have fitted in them. They said, yeah. So. Uh, so you've got stones that could have weighed a couple of tons each. If it wasn't the stones that were in them, then they would have been massive pieces of wood, which would also have been extremely heavy. If you just want to make an eclipse predictor, then well, you don't need to put that much effort into it. You know, you could you could carve one out of a fat piece of wood. That would work. Take your point. I'm, uh, now I'm going to be devil's advocate for myself and yeah. and and say that um, uh, that. W one could be in danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. This is true. Because there are other aspects of Stonehenge which we know make it clear that it was at least for the purpose of honouring what was going on in the heavens. Mm -hmm. In relationship to the uh, blue stones, we've got the station stones, the four station stones, mm -hmm. which are arranged perpendicular, uh, forms a... Uh, a rectangle which is perpendicular to the line of the midwinter sunrise. People have done a, a lot of work on this, and they are yet another aspect of Stonehenge. You know, th there is a complication, there is a sophistication in that place. My instinct is to be very sceptical, mm. but I think I'm on the fence. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. But again, I suppose from a we have a default to try to make very grand claims about what things are. You know, so something that it might have been the most mundane thing of all, but we call it a temple. And it's similar to that. So I think that we're looking at the you know just supposing hypothetically, because Stonehenge was built over a very long period of time, and Maybe, because we're honouring ancestors, it is, you know, it's pretty much universally thought to be a place of the dead, isn't it, as opposed to uh, a place of the living because of the, you know, the subtle differences that you find. Uh, But, um, but, well, maybe they were, you know, there was a reverence to the 56 ancestors who preceded the monument. Maybe. Maybe. Um, you know, it could be all manner of things, but we make it something so vast. And it also begs the question, um, we're talking about Stonehenge 1. So this is early Stonehenge yes, we're talking about. Without the Sarsen stones, we're talking about a hengeform monument, essentially a, a henge circle. Now, in uh, Stonehenge is not unique in terms of it being a... Uh, circle henge. So, uh, is the number fifty-six accidental or deliberate? Is it uh, is it con is it um, uh, is it a matter of context? Is it is it a matter of contingency? Fifty-six, because there are plenty of other stone circles, other henge henge uh, circle henges with different numbers of uh, of stones. Yes, I can't imagine Ranging for a moment that any part of it was accidental. It's just the the rationale is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can't. Whilst okay, you can dismiss this from the point of view of they were better at maths, but it's also remarkably close mm. to well, there's fifty two weeks of the year. Well, if you if you don't use our calendar, you know, is is it just another potential division of the year? Mm. But but Kevin's question was, if they weren't an eclipse predictor, what the hell were they? Yeah. Um, so really that question is, well, what were circle hinges for? Mm. That's my point. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Is it special enough so, as a hengeform so, monument to distinguish it from all the others? So are you saying that uh, that the very fact that there are 56 is incidental it just happens to be another you've got to look at you've got to ask that question and and weigh it up with with, with, against the others that's all i'm saying i'm I'm not being pedantic at all about it yeah so of course we can't answer that question but but it was was a a, a nice one just to pull about so uh, thanks Kevin, thanks for your input into the original conversation anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, thanks for sparking this one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, there you go. I know we've been as much use as a chocolate teapot, but um, mm. hey ho. <laughs> but, but now the excitement is mounting. <laughs> it is. It is the excitement. It is it, why it, is the excitement mounting, Michael? Do you know what time, time it is now? It is that time. It is time for. Stonehead of the Oh, come on, be a bit more professional than that. Come on. Stonehead of the Month. It's that time again. So, tell me, Rupert, who are we inaugurating into the Standing with Stones Hall of Stones thing? <laughs> the Standing with Stones award winner this month goes to community member Mike Turner. Congratulations, Mike. Congratulations We've pulled to you, you out Mike. because he he's been posting some uh, a lovely load of uh, of photographs of Welsh stones over the last weeks, and actually some of them are uh, they're interesting sites that I haven't I haven't seen an, a number of them before. So it's yeah, I mean we really do like it, and, and this is the thing, isn't it? So many stones, so little time. <laughs> As much, we we do love you know when people point us in, in new directions. You just have to forgive us that we don't um, uh, always uh, leap down that uh, down that route. You think, oh, we'll have to go there. Yes, oh, yes, but when? 
Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. We do love it. So, uh, yeah. yeah, thank you very much for those, Mike. It was good Keep stuff. Keep coming. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, well done. Thanks for your input into the community. Well done, that man. Thank you. Thank you very, 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 very much. Next. So, 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 that almost wraps up podcast number 14, which, incidentally, have you noticed there's something different, listeners? You may have noticed a slightly different quality to this podcast, and that's because Mr. Soskin is in the same, very same room. He's actually not in France at this moment. Um, All our podcasts, bar one, have Mm. been recorded with with you in France. Yes, Um, that's true. And and here we sit, uh, side by side, in the same studio. Uh, I I don't know if it makes a... I think it does make a huge difference, actually. I, I prefer it. Well, it's, it's, it's much more enjoyable. I prefer it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I should move back to England, really. I don't know if you, you, you're noticing a difference, but uh, anyway. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Do we have anything whimsical with which to finish our proceedings? Well, uh, we do... And I offer very half-hearted apologies for this being the moment when I don the grouchy hat. Oh, you did that last time. Last time, whimsy was a was you donning the flipping grouchy was, hat. Was that in whimsy? Yes. What was I grouchy about last time? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Such a long time ago. Well, well, at least a month. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but th- this is uh, th- uh, this is rather lovely and strange. Oh, it have to be lovely and strange. Lovely it? and strange. Yeah. Yes, it's a Thracian artifact, Bronze Age, comes from Bulgaria. Okay, and basically, it's a little metal tripod, uh, small enough to almost fit in your hand, right. and the top is a beautifully crafted stork's head. And the three slender metal legs taper to fairly sharp points. Right. So so what's whimsical about that, then? Well, it's academics going off on one. Oh. <laughs> Just because it's small and has the head of a bird, it's been declared as probably a children's toy, probably the oldest children's toy found... Well, of course, because people yeah. have always been in the habit of giving spiked metal objects to children to take outside and play with their friends. <laughs> it's, it's perfectly true that it's hard to see what purpose it may have served, but to me, at least, the notion that it was a toy is beyond ridiculous and bordering on utterly stupid. <laughs> now, I, I have to confess, um, Mr Soskin does have a point. I have seen and I can't imagine how it could function as a toy. I mean, those legs, they are stilettos. They are. They are pointy, 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 pointy things. They, they really are. Three yeah, of them. They are. Stuck together. Yes. You, um, know, you know what drives me potty? What? Well, to be fair, quite a few things drive you potty, but no, do tell. <laughs> Under any other set of circumstances, everything we ever find is branded religious, ritual or mystical. For God's sake, normally, if they dug up a Caithness paperweight, they'd say it was half a bloody crystal ball with arty flowers to the spring goddess. But the one f- bloody f- time somebody digs up a artifact that could actually be related to a religious sect or something genuinely mystical, they call it a f- children's toy for f- sake. Good grief, it would serve better as a weapon that you could stab in three directions. I'm sorry. If anybody's still listening, by the way, <laughs> they're probably shocked and um, yeah, dismayed and couldn't possibly think of supporting us via Patreon. <laughs> couldn't possibly think of uh, committing to even even just a even just a dollar a month. Packet of crisps. Even a packet of crisps. Oh, it's sad. So yeah, so so. Um, Thank you for listening. And seriously, if uh, if you have enjoyed uh, listening to us, please do consider uh, becoming uh, Patreon supporters. You can do so at uh, patreon.com slash standingwithstones. You do make a huge difference to our work. We want to um, be more doing more of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do films as well as podcasts uh, and interviews. Uh, it's just um, the more support we have, the more time we have to devote to 
making films, making podcasts, making interviews and other content. It's as simple as that. It is. So uh, uh, existing supporters, thank you for your support. And if you consider uh, becoming a supporter of ours, we thank you very, very much indeed. And uh, we look forward to the next time. We don't know what that will be about yet, do we? No, not yet. Uh, anything else to look forward to? Oh, yes, I know. Before the next podcast is uh, is out, I will have uh, produced uh, the film of my little trip, the film of my epic trip, to Mitchell's Fold in Shropshire. Seems, although it's not a, a totally amazing circle in itself, there's more to say about it than I thought um, mm. there would be, so... Yeah, interesting. That's one to look forward to. I hope it is, anyway. Um, (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Yeah, see you soon, folks. Bye-bye. Bye.